Nature Near Home and Other Papers by John Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To learn more or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nature Near Home and Other Papers by John Burroughs. Section 4. Insects. One reason why all truthful and well-written books upon insects interest us more than the subject would seem to warrant is that no creature is small in print or in a book. Print is the great equalizer. It magnifies the little, and it minimizes the big. When Fabre focuses our attention upon a wasp or a spider, his account engrosses our minds as completely as an account of a lion or an elephant would. The insect is singled out and separated from the thousand forms and entanglements that belittle it in field and wood. It alone occupies the page. The lion can do no more. It is precisely like putting the flea under the microscope. The wars, loves, industries, activities of Fabre's little people are described in terms and images which we use in giving an account of man and the greater beasts. The words make them big. A moment ago, a minute red insect, a mere moving point, revealed itself to my eye crawling across this sheet of paper. It was so frail and small that a bare touch of my finger, as my pocket glass showed, crushed it. If I could give you its life history and show its relation to other insects, it would stand out on my page as distinctly as if it had been a thousand times larger. Its travels, its adventures, its birth, its death, would fill the mind's eye. The reader would not have to grope for it on my page as my eye did when it discovered it. There is no little and no big to nature, and there is none to the mind. We think of the whirling solar system as easily as of a whirling top. The space that separates us from the fixed stars is no more to the mind than the space that separates us from our neighbors. In like manner, the atoms and the molecules of matter, when we have once conceived of them, are as easy of apprehension as are the rocks and the mountains. The theory of their nature and activities figures as large in our minds as that of the planetary systems. The stories of many of Fabre's flies and beetles interest us as much and are quite as significant as the story of Jack the Giant Killer or Robinson Crusoe. His history of the tumble-bug amuses and interests us as much as that of any of Plutarch's heroes. But see the tumble-bug there in the path or by the roadside, struggling with his little black globe, and he is little more than the microscopic spider on my sheet of paper. His history must be written large, magnified by printer's type, before it comes fully within our ken or has power to move us. Fabre's excursions afield are as entertaining and suggestive as Roosevelt's excursions into the big game lands of Africa. With a true artist, size does not count. The same is true with all the minutiae of nature, flowers, insects, birds, fishes, frogs. We are bound to magnify them by describing them in the terms of our experience with larger bodies. A wasp will capture its prey, paralyze it, and leave it upon the ground, and then go a few yards away and dig its hole. Then it will come back, look its game over, take its measure, and apparently conclude that the hole is too small, then go back and enlarge it sometimes making several trips of this kind. Its attitudes and procedure would lead you to say that the wasp was thinking and calculating as a mechanic would under similar circumstances. In another case, the sphex wasp has need to paralyze the mouthparts of the prey she is carrying, so, as she bestrides it and drags it also by its antennae, it cannot grip her with its mandibles or impede her progress by seizing upon blades of grass by the way. Like a skillful surgeon, the wasp knows just what to do, knows in what part of the head to insert her sting to produce the desired effect. To know everything and to know nothing, says Fabre, 
according as it acts under normal or exceptional conditions. That is the strange antithesis presented by the insect race. But we must never credit the insect with understanding as a result of cogitation. It knows nothing. Its life is a series of acts fatally linked together. The mind of the insect is the mind of nature. It is action and not reflection. The plant does not consciously select the elements in the soil or the air that it needs as we select. The vital chemistry in the organism does the selecting. But the moment we name what it is that does the selecting, we are caught in a trap. We want to know what prompted it to the act. We cannot find the underside of these things, because there is no underside, or upper side either, any more than there is to the earth. End of section 4 Recording by Edith Verne, Southern California, December 2008